You're listening to the N2K Space Network. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. It's a well-earned shift change for the three astronauts aboard Tiangong, who have been on China's space station for about six months now, as a fresh crew of three headed to orbit to begin their own half-year mission. And this new crew of three, composed of the mission commander, an aerospace engineer, and a payload specialist, are all notable in their own ways, of course. And one of them is also a first for China— Up until now, all Chinese astronauts have also been members of the Chinese Army. But with this new crew, China has now launched their first civilian astronaut. Today is May 30th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T-Minus. Genzo 16 brings a civilian to space. Software to blame for a hard landing. The UAE plans a mission to the asteroid belt. Russia adds to its collection of Condor Earth observation satellites. And our guest for today's episode is Joseph Oshbacher, Director General of the European Space Agency. Joseph talks to our executive producer, Brandon Karpf, about ESA's cybersecurity strategy. All this and more don't go anywhere. And here is your Intel briefing for today. On Tuesday morning, Beijing local time, from Juchuan, the Shenzhou 16 mission crew lifted off aboard a two-stage Long March 2F with a crew of three. Aerospace engineer Zhu Yangzhu, payload specialist Guy Haichao, and Commander Jing Haipeng. They are headed to Tiangong Space Station to relieve the three astronauts aboard who are from the Shenzhou 15 mission. Now, that crew has been aboard the Tiangong since November and are planned to head back to Earth hopefully this weekend. And like their predecessors, the Shenzhou 16 astronauts will be aboard the Tiangong space station for a half-year stint, conducting scientific research and educational outreach. The Shenzhou 16 also marks a notable first for China, as astronaut Guy Haichao, the mission's payload specialist, is a civilian, and his inclusion in the mission makes him the first civilian in China's human spaceflight program. The mission also marks the fourth journey to space for Shenzhou 16's mission commander, Jing Haipeng, which makes him China's most frequent space flyer, so to speak. Tech issues can be blamed for nearly every problem we face here on terra firma, but it seems it's also to blame for many glitches in space as well. 
Japan's iSpace has revealed that its failed lunar landing mission was likely caused by a problem with software and an incorrect measurement of the spacecraft's altitude. A statement by iSpace says the altitude measured by the onboard sensors rose sharply when it passed over a large cliff approximately two miles in elevation on the lunar surface, which was determined to be the rim of a crater. After reaching the scheduled landing time, the lander continued to descend at a low speed until the propulsion system ran out of fuel. At that time, the controlled descent of the lander ceased, and it's believed to have free-fallen to the moon's surface from just about three miles above the landing spot. So close, iSpace. So close. And staying with Japan for a moment, a public-private partnership has announced that it will attempt to beam solar energy from space as early as 2025. The project, led by a Kyoto University professor, plans to deploy a series of small satellites in geostationary orbit, or GEO. The satellites will collect the energy as microwaves and then beam them to ground-based receiving stations to be converted to electrical energy. Japan says they aim to demonstrate their technology ahead of the rest of the world and hope to use it as a bargaining tool for space development with other countries. The biggest hurdle for the partnership is figuring out how to lower the price tag of undertaking this mission, which is currently estimated to cost over 7 billion, yes, with a B, billion U.S. dollars. Following the success of the HOPE Mars mission, the United Arab Emirates has announced that it plans to send a spacecraft to study the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. The mission, aiming to launch in 2028, is set to send a vehicle to seven asteroids, including one called Justitia, that could give insight into the genesis of life on Earth. The 13-year project will take six years of development and seven years of exploration, spanning more than three billion miles. The spacecraft is named MBR, after Dubai's ruler Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum. Staying in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia's ArabSat added a new Batter 8 TV broadcast and telecom satellite in orbit on a SpaceX rocket rideshare this weekend. The satellite is carrying a jamming-resistant optical communications payload demonstrator. The spacecraft was produced by Airbus Defense and Space, who declared the launch a success several hours after liftoff from Florida, although to be fair, it will be several months for the vehicle to reach its 26 degrees east orbital slot. And now on to Russia, who launched the Condor FKA No. 1 military satellite for Earth observation last week on board a Soyuz 2.1A rocket. The Condor family of satellites have been developed by NPO Mashinostroyenya for the Russian Space Force. The Condor series of Earth imaging and military reconnaissance vehicles use an S-band synthetic aperture radar, which can conduct both continuous swath surveys and detailed spot surveys of Earth's surface. Now, they do say that Big Brother is always watching, so be sure to give them a show. (laughs) Continuing with satellite news, and global operator Telesat has awarded a contract to Canadian company Spaceflight Laboratory to manufacture a low-Earth orbit demonstration satellite. The LEO-3 vehicle aims to provide continuity for testing campaigns following the decommissioning of Telesat's Phase 1 LEO satellite. The LEO-3 will operate under an existing ITU network filing for Telesat Lightspeed, the company's enterprise-class LEO constellation. And we've been covering the saga of Space Command's permanent home a lot recently, and let's be honest, it's a drama worthy of its own Netflix series— 
And in the latest plot twist, it seems that the Air Force Secretary is now investigating changes made in the command's mission, of which the Secretary says he was not aware. So first it was politics, and now it's mission objectives in the way of the relocation to Alabama. Will they go to Colorado? Will they stay? Will they go? Stay tuned for future T-minus roundups as we reveal the next hurdle in the road to Redstone Arsenal. And on to news from NASA now. And the U.S. Space Agency welcomed Spain as the latest country to sign the Artemis Accords. At a ceremony at the Moncloa Palace in Madrid, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson and Spain's Science and Innovation Minister Diana Morant signed the agreement aimed at establishing a practical set of principles to guide space exploration cooperation among nations. The Office of NASA's Inspector General has released an audit on the Space Launch System Project, and it doesn't make for pleasant reading, especially if you're an SLS fan. NASA has been adapting heritage hardware from the space shuttle era, as you might know, including solid rocket boosters and RS-25 rocket engines to power the Artemis campaign's SLS that will launch the Orion crew capsule to the moon. The report says that NASA has incurred about $6 billion in cost increases related to both changes in scope of contracts awarded to Northrop Grumman and Aerojet Rocketdyne and is experiencing delays that are running over six years behind schedule. For its part, NASA says it's exploring ways to make the SLS more affordable by moving towards a fixed-price contract structure for booster production and establishing cost reduction targets on the production of new RS-25 engines. The report states that while these efforts may result in savings over the long term, ongoing schedule delays and cost increases raise questions about the agency's ability to meaningfully reduce booster and engine-related Artemis costs. Hmm. Now, after that doom and gloom story, we have some cheery news to end our briefing on. NASA and the U.S. Department of Education have signed a Memorandum of Understanding to strengthen collaboration between the two agencies. The MOU includes efforts to increase access to high-quality STEM and space education to students and schools across the United States. You can read more about that agreement and all of the stories that we've covered today in the selected reading section on our website, space.n2k.com. And we've included a piece from Seraphim Space on space investment being better than expected in 2023. Not too bad. And that concludes our Intel briefing for today. And stay with us for executive producer Brandon Karp's conversation with Joseph Oshbacher, Director General of the European Space Agency. Joseph talks to us about ESA's cybersecurity strategy. And hey, T-minus crew, our audience is growing rapidly, and that's a big thanks to you. If you're just joining us, be sure to follow T-minus Space Daily in your favorite podcast app. And also, if you could do us a favor, please share your favorite episodes on social media. It helps professionals like you find the show and join the crew. You can find our social media profiles in the show notes, and as always, at space.n2k.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The European Space Agency has been busy with remarkable endeavors for science, like JUICE, as well as ongoing communications and security infrastructure projects. And the data for all these projects has to be protected, of course. In this conversation with T-minus executive producer Brandon Karp, Joseph Oshbacher, Director General of ESA, walks us through how ESA integrates security into projects just like JUICE and how the agency is looking ahead to future investments in quantum technology. Cybersecurity is, uh, is, a, is a must for, for all the operations you have. Uh, on one side, of course, you have your, your communication, your email systems, your interactions with industry. Industry has a lot of IPRs, a lot of uh, information that is uh, commercial and confidence. Uh, and on the other side, you have uh, an infrastructure to run. An infrastructure means uh, satellites uh, in space, uh, rockets to launch, uh, uh, satellites that go not only uh, to, around our planet, but also to outer space, uh, to Jupiter. We have just launched a uh, juice. Uh, so all this needs to be secure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you have to make sure that... Uh, your system overall is uh, pretty watertight in terms of uh, all the possible attacks that, uh, that can happen and do happen uh, on, a, on a single day. Of course, like any other major organization, uh, we, we are holding a lot of information that is uh, relevant and that is extremely important. Uh, uh, a lot of it is industrial information, is uh, IPR, uh, intellectual property rights, uh, which are connected to industry's uh, advancement in technology. And space, of course, is one of the cutting-edge uh, uh, elements where where a lot of uh, research goes in and uh, and get, getting hold of this information, of course, is uh, is probably of interest to many. So yes, uh, we, we we have a good system in place. Uh, I couldn't name you all the specifics. Uh, even if I could, I wouldn't, uh, because uh, this is obviously something that uh, you don't want just to lay on the table. Uh, but I what I can say is uh, from my. IT and my uh, ESA security office uh, responsible that our system is uh, pretty robust, uh, pretty sound. Uh, in fact, we have a distributed system with uh, backups as, uh, as anyone would have uh, in such a situation, but really making sure that we defend information, uh, the information of our people, of our, of our industry, of our assets in space and uh, the assets on ground. And, uh, and of course, congratulations on JUICE. It's great to see that successful launch and the initial milestones being achieved. During the, that program development, were any of these considerations made about security, especially the, thinking about the communications with the, with the spacecraft and, and some of the potential threats? Was that part of the program? Of it, it, is, it is part of the, of the program. In fact, we have a very integrated security strategy that is really going uh, from the beginning with the project manager and integrating and incorporating security-relevant aspects to make sure that uh, communication encryption or whatever is required because if you don't and we have uh, sometimes in the past not done it uh, you you pay a very hefty price because then you have to patch it on and reintegrate and make sure it is still securing your system and therefore uh, it's additional work which is much more complex than when you start from uh, from from the beginning and that's our philosophy the way we do it so but i i, I guess this is not uh, unique i guess this is uh, done for major projects of of this nature uh, certainly this is our Philosophy, because if you don't integrate security from the beginning, uh, it is uh, much more complex afterwards. So you, you've talked a little bit right there about potentially dealing with technical debt. You know, some of the older programs that may have not considered these things like secure by design and and modularity moving forward. And you've had a storied career at ESA. You know, nearly forty years uh, working on these programs. How have you seen 
the industry and the technology develop, uh, approaching digital transformation from the beginning of your career to today, what are some of the biggest insights, biggest changes you've seen from the digital ecosystem? I mean, it's it's clear, as you say, I have a long career in ESA. That means I'm an old man, uh, as, as, you, as, you, as you can conclude from that. No, but uh, just um, going back to the early days, uh, of course, always in space, you are collecting a lot of information. You have uh, major data sets uh, uh, and you have to manage them. Uh, so the digitalization or digital handling of all the information you have always has been an issue or has been an important uh, aspect, uh, certainly also on the side of ESA. But of course, if you compare the means of, uh, of those days uh, with the means of today, there's no comparison. But also the security relevance or, or awareness and consciousness didn't exist uh, decades ago. And mm-hmm. this is really something that became much stronger, of course, with internet and with all the, the systems that are being built up and the data becoming much bigger. So this is certainly also something that has been growing. Uh, one thing I... I certainly have uh, observed uh, is the um, also the structural integration of security in the projects. Uh, at the beginning, it didn't exist, and mm-hmm. we built the satellite, and we had uh, probably not as much uh, security considerations, uh, but just uh, uh, because communication wasn't really hacked uh, at the time, or there was not the danger of uh, of uh, communication being uh, being impacted. Uh, while today, uh, we are much more cautious and uh, take m- many more precautions, and therefore it's really integrated much much earlier in the process. So yes, we have certainly learned here as we go. We have certainly increased uh, our robustness uh, of the overall system, uh, and uh, I think this is something that uh, that is um, not only necessary, but uh, certainly characterizes, uh, I would say, uh, a, a modern age uh, space uh, infrastructure, space, space hardware, which uh, simply demands uh, this kind of uh, precautions. So then looking forward, next five years, next 10 years, where are the key opportunities and the key risks for these types of architectures? Opportunities certainly are linked with uh, much more robust encryption. Uh, and we work a lot with quantum technology um, mm-hmm. on several aspects. Quantum communication, for example, is, is one of them. Uh, we just uh, uh, work on a quantum key distribution uh, uh, communication via spacecraft. Oh, wow. Uh, and this is... Uh, it's certainly cutting-edge uh, technology and something that um, is necessary to uh, to build up our resilient uh, communication system. Uh, I think this is certainly one one of the elements. Cybersecurity, more classically, is certainly uh, another element that needs to be reinforced. But this is uh, uh, again, I think this is a uh, good standard practice for organizations and uh, agencies of of this type of work or this this size and this type of work, uh, like the one of the European Space Agency. So what are your needs then as an agency? What, where do you see yourselves investing uh, capital, uh, looking for industry partners, looking for businesses with new solutions? Where do you envision those investments coming? I mean, I'm not the expert myself on, uh, on cybersecurity and information technologies that are required to do so. Uh, but what I'm certainly doing is uh, making sure that we have that we get uh, the best assets uh, on the market uh, that do protect our systems. And I think this is just a trend that will continue. In terms of budget, of course, we increase uh, the amount of uh, funding required uh, to protect our systems. But um, uh, certainly we go, uh, as uh, the threats globally increase, uh, we have to harden and uh, further protect our systems. And I think this is uh, it's common sense uh, that you would apply in this uh, for, for, for ESA or probably also for many other organizations who are dealing with large amounts of, uh, of important data. And our thanks again to Joseph Oschbacher, Director General of the European Space Agency, for joining us on T-Minus. 
We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And welcome back. And today is just a little bit of trivia for you. Now, yesterday, with the flight of the Shenzhou 16 mission to bring a fresh crew to the Tiangong space station, we actually hit a record number of humans on orbit at one time, 17 people in all. Now, if you look up the Guinness Book of World Records for the most number of people in space at one time, the winning number is 19, achieved in December 2021 when a civilian crew aboard a Blue Origin flight briefly entered official space adding their numbers to the astronauts aboard the two orbiting space stations. So one record says it's 19, but today everyone's saying it's 17, and you might be wondering, what gives? Well, today's record is the difference between people in space, just above the Kármán line, for example, and people fully on orbit. And either way you slice it, it's amazing to see records being broken. 17 people in orbit at one time. That's just one person short of a full baseball game. A very compact, slow, lightweight baseball game, but still. So that's six astronauts aboard China's Tiangong Space Station and 11 crew aboard the International Space Station, which included the four Axiom-2 crew members. And that brings us, if you can do the math, to the 17 on orbit, as we mentioned earlier. And that number of 17 is only going to last about 24 hours, as about 12 hours after the Shenzhou 16's arrival to the Tiangong, the Axiom-2 crew began their departure from the ISS. Still, busy times on orbit. And that's it for T-Minus for May 30th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of our podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in our show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts just like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector. From the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. See you tomorrow.